are the trauma healing learnings based on one mom's journal entries recorded in real time from a catastrophic event with her son that you've been listening to in the blink of an eye story. Life can change in the blink of an eye. Hello, dear ones. In the middle of a crisis, you want to be sure there are people that can quickly, efficiently, and calmly guide you to the best possible outcome. I want to talk today about bodily injury crisis. A lot of thought goes into the systems that we have in place to respond to emergencies, and a lot of training and attention goes into each branch of those systems. Well, in today's episode, I sit down with someone who has an intimate knowledge of the players who are the first responders to an emergency situation where bodies have been harmed. I imagine you will learn something you didn't know about emergency response, and you will also get a taste of what it means to stay calm in a crisis, and why those who work as emergency responders have the gift of staying calm in the storm. Did you know our podcast sponsor, the 501c3 nonprofit, I See That?, The Integrative Center for Trauma Healing, Advocacy, and Transformation is now the Blink of an Eye nonprofit. And they have a launch campaign to raise funds so they can go bedside with SCI families in crisis. You can donate at www.blinkofaneye.org for the HEAL team, bringing hope, empowerment, advocacy, and logistical navigation tips with love to SCI families in crisis. If you are interested in volunteering or becoming part of the Blink of an Eye cutting-edge relational approaches to trauma healing, medical navigation, and emotional and spiritual support for SCI families in crisis, fill out an information form at www.blinkofaneye.org. Follow Blink of an Eye on Instagram and Facebook at Blink of an Eye Nonprofit. Links to these platforms will be in the show notes. Welcome to Season 3, Trauma Healing Learning 23, Staying Calm in Bodily Injury Crisis with Rich Holzman. Hello, Blink of an Eye family. Today's episode is dedicated to all first responders, all of the dispatchers who receive 911 calls, all of the firefighters and the EMTs and other personnel who dedicate years of their lives to being trained in how to respond in crisis and then go on to be that cool head in a very fast-paced, tense, often chaotic moment of decision-making and protocol with some of those situations having life or death outcomes. If you know of someone in your life who does this kind of work, please Direct them to this episode as a way to thank them this week. Our Blink of an Eye story episode retraced the traumatic event I experienced, receiving the call of Archer's catastrophic accident, the moment in which I was catapulted into both hypervigilance as well as overwhelm, a moment I was thrust above 
my own window of tolerance. And this experience was as a receiver of such news. I could not fathom what it was like for Archer as the injured person. And I wondered for months what it was also like for those around Archer on the beach that afternoon in the chaos of getting him to emergency services and to a hospital. As I retraced any lingering overwhelm I experienced years later, I was curious to speak to someone who regularly witnesses catastrophic accidents and traumatic events in the role of commander, making split-second decisions on who and how to respond, how to move a person through the event as safely as possible, and with as little harm as possible. And that's what brought me to Rich Holzman, the retired assistant chief of the Montgomery County, Maryland Fire Department, where he served for 25 years. I originally knew Rich from another line of service when he was Archer's baseball coach through elementary and middle school, playing for the Roland Park Baseball League. I knew that if anyone could break down the elements that go into guiding a family through a crisis like the one Archer experienced, it would be Rich. In this conversation you are about to hear, Rich breaks down exactly what goes in to responding to an emergency and all the people that have to collaborate to make the most of each fleeting second following a 911 call. I know you will come away with a deeper understanding of emergency response systems. And hopefully your insights will be a resource for you, as well as providing confidence in the systems we have in place across the United States at the local level where injuries and accidents occur, and what goes in to a care team working together to respond to a crisis, which might someday be your crisis or the crisis of someone you love. Here we go. Does a guy like you, fighting fires, working in crisis, get into the very bucolic, slow game of baseball? <laughs> well, that goes just goes all the way back to my childhood of loving to play baseball. Mm-hmm. So, and there's just something, you know, calming about just sitting there throwing a ball back and forth, playing a game of catch, and you know, it's a time where a lot of the world's problems can be solved, and a lot of that conversation and communication can be occurring in those moments. And it's amazing that when you're doing that, how much you can get people to also open up. Oh, interesting. They just become relaxed and it just becomes that nice back and forth. And, you know, conversations just flow because you're not thinking about anything other than just catching the ball and throwing. That's so lovely because you certainly saw that in Archer. Um, I did. Yeah. Yeah. What do you remember? If you, if you remember anything. Oh, I remember plenty with Archer because, you know, with Archer, as he came on, his spirit and energy brought uh, certainly brought a light to the team and his smile. 
You know, he was always wanting to push the play to the next level. You know, and you could see that, and and you know, with him, he was definitely that gifted athlete. Even in that middle school age, you can tell that he was just a pure athlete, and he had all those athletic abilities and stuff like that. And to watch him during the game, you know, he'd be looking to me to be ready to steal the next base. When could he go? And he always just tried to do better and never let bad moments get him down either. Mm. So, you know, he never got, you know, really, if there was a disappointing moment or if he struck out in those things, he took it in stride. You're really reminding me of moments as a mom, as a spectator watching, and I can see Archer, his little, his legs going from that, it was grade school to those middle school years. He always reminded me of a cartoon character because he would run so fast and they would go round and round and round like a wheel and then, and seeing his thumb go up, like when he, when he stole a base, he was always wanting to like, exactly push the limits and did you see me? And we did it. And And then it was also, I know you told me not to go, but I thought I could go anyway. Right. right. I saw the opportunity coach. (laughs) To me, it was just a great moment and to get a chance to, coach others as a gift and to, you know, watch them and help them grow and develop and, you know, just share those experiences. That's a, those are lucky moments. They are lucky moments and they're lucky moments for us as parents. Thank you. Thank you for those years. Thank you for your dedication as a coach and all the pleasant, beautiful memories we have from that. I'm thinking about how the sport of baseball is, as you said, so relaxing. And we have this unique opportunity to really explore what happens in a catastrophic accident from you and what happens behind the scenes with the emergency medical services and in the context even of of Archer with spinal cord injury. And and while his spinal cord injury happened in New Jersey and, and you are here in Maryland, I'm really looking forward to understanding more about your background in EMS and with the fire department. And then if you could walk us through what what it really looks like behind the scenes, what so many of us will never know or, or see. When you become a firefighter or, you know, especially in Montgomery County, Maryland, um, not only are you responsible for being a firefighter, but you're also responsible for being both in, at least an EMT or possibly as a paramedic. So I was a paramedic and a firefighter and did my career. I had started my EMS career actually up in New York before moving down this way. Um, was never expecting this to be my full-time career. It was something that I started on the side, you know, volunteering in Westchester County. And then it just grew from there and went to college for computer engineering, you know, and really thought that was going to be my path. I was going to be the white shirt, gray suit, yellow tie, IBM kind of guy. And the EMS world just kept bringing me in and bringing me in. And it was that chance to, it was the diversity of the experiences. It was that chance to help, to try to make a difference. It was the camaraderie and everything that came with it. And the more that I was doing that, the harder it was to think about doing anything else. Hmm, So you really kind of got a bug. I did. And, you know, my father growing up never liked his career. He was never happy doing what he was doing. So the one thing I always wanted to be true to myself with was finding my passion and doing exactly what I wanted to be doing as a career. Mm. And I was very fortunate that in, 
you know, moving down here because I took an educational leave from one place to go to another and thought, well, I'd eventually find my way and put in some applications while I was in Maryland. And next thing you know, here I am working for Montgomery County and got into the county at the right time where the county was just growing and expanding the fire rescue service. So the experiences that I had there were just phenomenal. Isn't it curious how our life always shapes us, but perhaps your father didn't realize the example he was actually giving you, or maybe you and he talked about that, but to really be drawn towards something that mattered to you, made your heart sing. Oh yeah. And it wasn't a day that went by that, um, throughout even all the frustrations of whatever was going on in the business of the fire department or, you know, those busy days where you're running 20 calls a day or something that I ever felt like I was in the wrong career. I was in the wrong profession. And so no matter what, I felt great doing what I was doing. And I felt like, you know, I was very lucky to be able to say that I felt good going to work every day. Mm, yes. It's such a blessing, isn't it? it is. I, I won't digress too much, but I, I have, I've known for 30 years now when I left uh, the litigation world and started the Baltimore mediation that I was born to be a mediator and I have been happy every single day doing that work. It's really been just, yeah, make, makes, makes my heart sing. It's hard. <laughs> just like your job, I'm sure is hard. And let's talk about that. But what a true blessing it can be because sometimes you have to leave, as you said, the gray suit and the yellow tie and the envisionment that you may have had for yourself behind. You know, and that makes a difference. And sometimes it's difficult to make that choice of following your passion and having that confidence to do it versus from an income perspective or otherwise, it's, it's a risk. It is a but, risk. In fact, I think oftentimes following one's heart, people might not get the full emotional and mental support from those around them because it looks like it's going to be a step down, you know, like they're not going to make the same amount of money that they could have made had they been something else. But somehow it all seems to work out when you do follow what makes you happy. There's enough. Oh, yeah. You know, I'm wondering when you reference EMS, could you share with us how the letters EMS are actually used? Because we hear people saying EMS... And I think of it as, as emergency medical services, but what does that actually mean and entail? So that encompasses all of your first response and your transport from the scene to the hospital. So it involves also all of your training. So you've got your you know, EMS as a collective would involve your recruiting, your hiring, your training, your recertifications, all of your equipment, all of your apparatus making sure that you've got the dispatch capabilities, that you have the resource, the right resources going to the call, whether that's going to be by boat, by air, by ambulance, by car, by fire truck. You know, that's all part of that EMS system. And then what we're finding is, is that as the EMS system has evolved, it not only involves that acute response, but they're also expanding into dealing with what would have otherwise been some more mental health responses, you're seeing systems evolve into managing more senior care, elder care, or those patients that would otherwise be those frequent flyers, the ones that don't have full access to help every day, 
but you know you still need to provide that assistance. So then it's trying to make sure you get on the scene and you're bringing either mental health providers with you or some systems are using patient care advocates and those things so that they can get the right resources to the people. So thinking about spinal cord injury in particular, how many spinal cord injury calls might a full-time paramedic or someone working in a fire department receive in a year? Well, the hard part with the spinal cord injuries, you're always, there's always a suspicion of a spinal cord injury. So you could have that automobile accident, you could have the fall, you could have the the gunshot, you know, into the main torso area. You could have a stabbing, a bicycle accident, a swimming pool accident. Any of those could lead to that suspicion of. And so you're always trying to make sure that you minimize any potential risk of other damage. You know, you're trying to do no further harm and actually just trying to make sure that you're ideally stabilizing and improving from when you get the call. Mm -hmm. On the true spinal cord injuries where you have that get on the scene and there's a paralysis or something to truly indicate that injury is there, those are probably a small percentage. The hardest part is, is you're really working on the prevention of that injury based on the mechanism of trauma. Right, because the mechanism of trauma, if I'm tracking you correctly, would be how a body is physically moved that could then create some damage. Is that the exactly. reference? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. I suspect that that may have even been part and parcel. I mean, they did such an amazing job getting Archer off the beach, but it was not a regular occurrence. And he was in a relatively remote place from where the beach patrol would normally have gone. There were some fumblings, but it was uh -huh. also incredible what, oh, what they all did. And everyone was just doing their best. The courage I think it takes to be in the EMS field, knowing the potential damage that could be created, but the life that's being saved is really remarkable to me. Oh, it is. And, you know, the biggest challenge that we all have as EMS providers is time. And so, you know, if we think about the archer's event, you know, archer's in and swimming. And archer's at that moment just enjoying himself. And he's, you know, one of possibly, you know, a group of people that's in the water at that moment. And archer then has his event. And then it takes now, so that clock starts ticking at that moment. Then it takes that recognition of a lifeguard to realize, hey, somebody's in trouble or somebody else around Archer to indicate, hey, he's in trouble. Um, and then you're dealing with that now notification call for resources, um, probably by radio or whistle or other stuff. And then somebody else may be making that next call to get to the lifeguard or start calling 911 at some point. Now they've got to get down that chair, get down into the water to go get him, get to him, and then be able to manage against the waves, against that tide, to be able to pull him out and then get him up on shore and start that assessment as other people are starting to then come in. And then while that's going, it all depends on then from the 911 perspective, when was that call made and how quickly, you know, does that call get processed? On average, it takes about a minute to process a 911 call. So from the time you pick up the phone and call 911, depending on, Volume at that moment, on average, 
you're about a minute from being able to determine what the call is and then be able to get resources started. They may still keep you on the call, gathering more information, but they've already queued it off to get dispatched. And then it gets queued into the dispatch. And then while we're at the firehouse waiting for a call, you know, it takes, it could take a minute to get out the door, you know, depending on where everybody is in the station, what's going on at that moment. And you're speaking about a full, like an actual 60 second minute yeah. because yeah. of the drills so, that you've done. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's, you know, getting out the door in 60 seconds is a pretty good time. You know, most people are, you know, at best, I know we've done 35 and 40 second responses, but that's everybody in the right place at the right time, being able to get on that unit, put the appropriate level of gear on that you need, you know, sit down, seat belts on, door opens up and you head out the door. And then you have the travel time. You know, so in the meantime, this is all working in that background. And then, you know, in Archer's case, that clock started way back here. And so, you know, that's minutes ticking. So from the time of Archer's event to the time somebody shows up on the scene, you know, you could be eight minutes, 10 minutes is probably not a bad response time from where that station is to where the scene was to you know, being able to have that extra help and manpower and staffing and skill level expertise to be able to provide greater assistance. And in our case, the paramedics came from Wildwood, which is about 23 minutes away. So now I'm understanding much more about the time, et cetera. But this idea that when a 911 call is made, it's about one minute. Was that nationwide? It can be longer at times. Sometimes it can be faster. That's about the, the goal is trying to really manage that 911 call in about a minute to get resources started. So we might be still talking. I might be gathering more information as to what's going on. But in the meantime, I have enough information to say that this is a, a drowning at the beach. And that gets typed in as a call type. That goes to the dispatcher. Then the dispatcher goes ahead and sends the appropriate units that are available. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm just wondering in terms of what it looks like from a prioritization of care. How is that then determined? Does it change? Well, you'll end up with, you know, your heart attacks, your not breathing, cardiac arrest, drowning, severe traumas, and those things. Those are your higher priority calls. You know, a building fire versus alarm bells going off is a higher priority call. And so as they go into that queue, they'll drop hot, you know, they'll go into that front of that line to be dispatched. Depending on the call, they'll divert. I mean, if they need to divert a unit off of another call, hey, we need to take you off of this, you need to go to this. Is all that done on a, like a telephone triage system when you speak of like the higher priority of the call? Well, how does that, how is that managed? How, what does that look like? How does that work? So that's based on that human interaction. So that's based on the information that's coming in and what that dispatcher is gathering in the, the information from the caller. So the more specific a caller can be, the better it is. Exactly. Mm -hmm. If somebody would have just have said, you know, Archer was just an injured person in the water, that would be a lower level priority dispatch because you're not thinking severe trauma. You're thinking that somebody might have an ankle injury, might have a shoulder injury, 
might have a scrape or a bruise as opposed to somebody that was a drowning or a spinal cord injury or some sort of traumatic event. And so that specificity within the 911 call allows for the right resources to be dispatched from the beginning, Mm -hmm. you know, at least to get the right resources started. It's a really a wonderful learning point for any of us as, as lay people, as citizens of the United States about what good citizens we can be to make that call as fast as possible, even if we think somebody else has made it and with specificity. And it's also that willingness to make the call. You know, that's the other thing that concerns me now is I watched, so like we shared earlier, I was in Cape May the week prior and I was watching the lifeguards and they actually had to go in and grab three people out. And, you know, I was watching and if they needed some added assistance, I would have more than happy to jump in and help out. But the other entertaining part was just watching everybody taking their phones and just wanting to do that. Oh, take a picture. Be recording or taking pictures and those things as opposed to somebody thinking, hey, do I need to make the call? Make the call. And so that's where I get concerned now is, is everybody's looking for those video moments or those picture moments and recording is how are we making sure the right calls are occurring at the same time? Mm, that is a, a serious concern, sort of the voyeurism or just even the documentation, if you will, as opposed to the action that is required to actually save a life. I'm wondering about when that call is made and it goes to the right as you said, services than the right uh-huh. people. I, I've learned with our nonprofit, I see that in our blink of an eye services, that the military call the time of injury with a catastrophic injury, the golden hour. Uh-huh. And that in spinal cord injury, the golden hour is about 15 hours with regard to really making sure that the spinal cord injured person gets to the right place, even though the first moments are so critical, especially if there are lung issues. Well, that would be the key thing with what you described with Archer is, is that if he was drowning and had drowned, then your first focus is always going to be on that, you know, that airway and that breathing and circulation. You're trying to make sure that you're managing those critical components that are going to keep somebody alive. That's right. That's right. You might not ever get into into the 15 hours if you can't even keep someone alive. Yeah, for sure. So Rich, from a fire department standpoint, where does the fire department come in on these EMS calls? So many of the EMS systems are fire department based. So in the case of Cape May, Cape May provides an ambulance through the fire department as well as the fire response. In Montgomery County, we provided all of the fire and EMS response. So we were doing fire the first response for EMS as well as all of the transport as well. So whether it was a basic life support transport or advanced life support transport or a paramedic engine response, we were providing all of that first level response as well as transport. So whom are you communicating with once the call is received by you? Is there any medical communication at that point? It starts off, we have a public safety communication center in Montgomery County that takes, screens all of the calls for both fire and police. So if a call comes in, the first question usually they ask is, you know, fire or police. And then um, they'll assign that out to the next level dispatcher. So it'll go from that initial call taker to the right branch that it needs to go through. Then 
you're dispatched out on the call. Now, within the medical world, we all have standing protocols that we have to operate within. So there's standards of care. So that allows me to go through a whole treatment plan prior to contacting a hospital. Now, once we're on the scene, we have full access to being able to communicate with both the closest ER, the closest trauma center, or the closest specialty center. Is it like a hotline that only the fire department has, or is it a telephone line that anyone like I would also be able to access? Actually, it's a statewide um, system that we patch through through a radio system. So we actually communicate with a uh, medical dispatcher at that point, who will then patch us into the appropriate hospital to be able to communicate with us. And, and how do you choose the, the appropriate hospital? based on what the criteria is as far as what's going on with the patient. Mm -hmm. So really trying to make sure you're getting that patient to the best location for the best care for the best survivability. Yeah. It's just amazing and so curious and interesting to me. If I think about a heart attack or I think about something that, that happens with uh, a lot of frequency that emergency room and EMS workers are, are working with and dealing with or, and motor vehicle accidents and, and all kinds of things that you've laid out for us. But how with spinal cord injury, because it is so rare that mm -hmm. even the hospitals in a particular locale might not have the expertise, even a trauma center might not have the expertise. Do you ever face that or what do you do or think about it? Well, the yeah, first right. goal is always how do we get to the, the best care center to make sure we can get the stabilization occurred so that we can make sure that if we know this is going to be somebody that's going to have to go from us to one hospital, then on to another specialty center, we've still got to make sure that we get them stabilized for all of that level of transport. You make the decisions on the scene of can we get to that specialty center by air? So in Maryland, we're able to use the Maryland State Police. They have a phenomenal air system that allows you to transport patients all throughout the state to all the appropriate centers and down into D.C. as needed. So you're able to get people to the resources that are the best within the state. And all of that still assumes a basis of both time and what's going to be the best condition to get them there. So if you have that severe this time of year, we have those severe thunderstorms coming through. When we have a severe thunderstorm, the helicopters are not going to be coming in. Mm. So now we're transporting by ground. And you have to figure out, do you transport that hour, hour and a half by ground? Or do you get to that closest trauma center, let them maintain the stabilization, and then when conditions allow for best transfer of care, do they do that? Mm. You know, So you start thinking about all of those different scenarios that yeah. come into place. Or, all those different scenarios. It could be a beautiful day, but yet, you know, all the closest helicopters are already occupied on other events or other incidents. Mm. So you're still making those decisions of which way to go. You know, as you're transporting somebody and as you think about a spinal cord injury and not doing, you know, further harm is, you know, we're transporting in trucks. You know, they are, you know, either a pickup truck chassis or a medium-duty truck chassis with, you know, an air ride suspension that'll cushion the ride so much, but it's still a truck going up and down the road. And as you look at any of our infrastructure, riding around the city of Baltimore or anywhere else, it can be a bumpy ride. You're driving an emergency vehicle, reacting to those that are out on the road. 
and I've had everybody do everything from try to race you to stop short to back up into me to, you know, you name it, it will occur in trying to get somebody to the hospital. And so it's a challenge at best. Right. The heroes are also the drivers navigating yeah. all those potential pitfalls as well. I'm thinking in, with regard to spinal cord injury as well, that with all the hospitals in the United States, over 6,000 hospitals in the United States of America, and how many have trauma centers? Well, there are only 69 trauma centers in the U.S. And how many trauma centers have spinal cord injury expertise? 14. So the idea that you mentioned about locally for the EMS worker and the fire department to know the nearest trauma center for stabilization mm -hmm. that I, I wish that I had known and I would hope to educate families whom you think this will never happen to me or I pray it would never happen to me to have the confidence and the courage to get your loved one stabilized and with incredible gratitude to the EMS workers and to that trauma center for doing so, and then get them to another place of expertise as quickly as possible, even if it is later than a 15 or, or mm -hmm. 20 hour period. And it's not that hospitals are less than, it's that that's not their expertise. So your comments are, are quite illuminating around your perspective, realizing that, yeah, it's about stabilization and that's our job. And there might not be the expertise because these cases are so infrequent. They're infrequent. And, you know, again, it's just getting to that with the numbers you mentioned and thinking about how big this country is. Well, and, and to add to that, while spinal cord injury is, is rare of, of this magnitude, Spinal cord injury, there are 18,000 new spinal cord injury cases a year in the United States. So when you think about those numbers and where are they going, and, right. and many of them remain in a local hospital, EMS did their job, took them to the best place they could for then, you know, the next handoff, but the next handoff doesn't, doesn't happen. Right. And that next end, it's not there. The resource isn't there. Mm -hmm. Well, and the part, you know, that goes with this is not only do we have, you know, the patient to deal with, but we also have to make sure that part of our responsibility is managing the family. We have to manage any other potential bystanders. We also have to make sure that somebody goes back and touches base with those lifeguards in that case to make sure they're doing well you know, that somebody we're looking out for their health as well, because that becomes part of that overall scene and that overall incident. So then as you're, you know, as you're an incident manager, you're making sure that you're looking at that whole scene while somebody's taking care of the immediate patient here, somebody has to make sure they're taking care of mom or dad or the wife or the children that have to now be driven to the hospital or, gain access to make sure that they're safe and that they're not just going to be trying to chase that ambulance as fast as they can up the road, that they get there safely so they can take care of, you know, be available for that long haul. So there's a real focus 
on the injured person, but also this family systems focus on the literal family, but the family system in the case of a, of an archer incident or a drowning or a spinal cord injury on the beach, the lifeguards and how are they doing as well? What does that, can you walk us through that on the scene itself? And then after that? So part of the scene itself is trying to make sure that one, you're taking care of that immediate need. You're also monitoring everybody's safety to make sure that, you know, from an incident command perspective, you're managing both the patient and the rest of the scene. So is anybody else coming in on the scene? Can anybody else be getting hurt right now? Is everybody properly protected for what's going on? And then you're trying to manage any family or close friends or close relatives or somebody that's on the scene there that might be with this person. So could they travel with the EMS to the hospital um, or in a helicopter or in an ambulance? What we usually do is if on an ambulance, if we have the ability, depending on what's going on in the unit, what level of care we need to provide, you know, we'll try to use a secondary vehicle if needed to get them there. Sometimes we might put somebody up in the passenger seat of the ambulance and let them ride. But rarely, unless it's a child that might need to be held or something special there, we try not to put anybody in the back with the patient because we're trying to provide care. We're moving around. Something may happen in that moment, and now we're trying to take care of that moment, and it's hard to take care of two people right in that emergent situation. And so, and there's only just so much space in the back of one of those boxes that you're trying to work through and work around. And so then we try to figure out, can we use a utility vehicle or something else, or if police are going, can they bring family up? Um, is there somebody that a neighbor or somebody else that could drive the patient's relatives to the hospital to assist? And all of that are, those are questions being asked at the scene by one of the paramedics or one of the EMS workers. Yep. Somebody in the background trying to make sure we're covering and taking care of everybody. Is that a role that's specifically assigned to one of the team members? It's usually that role of whoever happens to be the ranking person as part of, you know, making sure you're evaluating that scene and that you've got everything covered. A ranking person, meaning sort of the person uh, most senior? Most senior or highest rank in the department or on the scene at that moment. You're trying to make sure that you're coordinating that you've got, you know, that patient taken care of. Usually on a scene where you have something like lifeguards having to provide care, you know, we try to make sure that we touch base with them of that they're doing okay. Because we know that that's a traumatic moment for them because more often than not, they're going through a day and they might have to help somebody swim back in. But generally, they're spending time standing by. You know, they're that ounce of prevention. They're that watch. That care component is so critical. I'm wondering... What does it look like in your experience at Montgomery County to check in with, for instance, a, a beach patrol or the, the lifeguards at a scene or whoever it is who was making a rescue effort? How do you check in and when do you check in? So one, we try to make sure that depending on the incident, that if I can't do it with the resources I have on the scene, I'll request an additional resource. So I might request a duty officer or an incident you know, manager to come out to the scene to 
be responsible for making sure we got resources taken care of there. The fire department, Montgomery County, we were very active in developing a critical incident stress management program where we had peer counselors and resources available 24-7 so that if you did have that event, you could activate those resources very quickly. And as part of that, we would also try to make sure that not only were we taking care of, in this case, let's say it was a pool lifeguard or a bystander, we would also try to also check in on the ER staff as well. Because these events are, you know, it's that whole system that comes into play. And we work very closely with all of those providers and people in place. So you try to make sure that we're all taking care of each other and that, you know, we do those follow-ups and, you know, with the lifeguards, we've done stuff where we follow back up the next shift. We'll go, we'll take the ride down to the pool and just check in and see how somebody's doing or make sure that one of our EMS duty officers passes it off to the, the next day shift supervisor to go in and check. We'll make sure that their supervisor has been contacted, you know, so that they know what resources are available if needed and to not hesitate to reach out. So there really is a shift I'm hearing from maybe the way it had been in years past is something that is much more family systems oriented, uh, not just responding to the immediate scene and then doing the, the uh, handoff, but rather checking back in, recognizing that the bystanders and others who are there might need care. And then the, the other piece that I'm, as you know, super interested in, which is also taking care of those who respond, the EMS workers themselves. <laughs> I am curious, first of all, about the family. So when you make a rescue as an EMS worker, fire department, assistant chief, and the family is not present or no one is there for the injured person, let's say, for one reason or another, right? Anything, motor vehicle accident, whatever it is. How is the family contacted? So um, if there's nobody there right away, and nobody that we can find. And assuming the person is, if the person is conscious, we'll ask them who we can call. But if the person is unconscious, then we're relying on any information we can gather. So that information might be getting a home address off of a driver's license. And then we're reaching out to resources to go by that house and see if we can contact somebody, see if there's anybody home. And that would be within the purview of what the EMS and fire department would do. We would do that, but we may even ask police to do that. You know, if they're on the scene, you know, we can have them assist with some of this to make sure that there's a reach out. They would be able to then have other police officers or somebody respond, you know, go by that house to see if they can make a notification. Mm-hmm. I've, heard, know, so I've we, heard stories of that and how traumatic that, that can be as well with the way that that news is, is delivered, in, in particular if it's not delivered in a trauma-informed way. But it's helpful to hear how that originates with EMS. And it could be that in somebody's phone, they have those in case of emergency contacts. And that if you're able to, if any of those are on there, you know, can be opened up from their phone to be able to get to, you know, then you try to do that reach out. And it's a very difficult call when you're calling to reach somebody. And you're also trying to do everything you can to make sure that the person is who you know, they think they are, you you know, you don't don't want to be giving out information just to anybody. And then now if you're devastating, you're providing what could be devastating news or bad news that, you know, you're then having to manage now that person's response. Yes. And so 
you know, it is very difficult. And, you know, when we come into somebody's home to take their loved ones to the hospital and they're in critical condition, you're still dealing with that family that was there in the house. That's and right. you're still trying to manage whether it's the kids, the grownups, the, you know, whatever relatives are there, you know, that situation. The training I'm thinking about for the EMS workers to even make calls like that or the police, um, what goes into the training, if any, to make those calls? There's not as much training as you would hope. You know, you're really trying to rely on people doing the best that they can with the right information they have in front of them and trying to have the appropriate level of both empathy and compassion and making sure that they're also, you're not providing also a lot of false hope as well. You want to try to be sincere and honest. And so it's very difficult, you know, in those call moments to not want to say, hey, everything is going to be okay when you know that it might not be. You know, and that you're really trying to say that everybody's doing the best that they can right now. And that, you know, they're making sure their loved one is getting to the right location for the best possible care. Who knows? We might be able to put together trainings and deploy teams that can go to the groups, whether they were lifeguards or whether they were other EMS workers, where there has been a catastrophic spinal cord injury to service them over those 30 days after an injury. Yeah, but we, you know, we need them and we need them to stay doing what they're doing. Exactly. To, to be able exactly. to serve. That, exactly and right. That's the most important part. That is the most important part. I applaud you for everything that you've done. Because to have an event like this occur and to have it with Archer and to be so close there and to selflessly want to educate and help others and prepare others to be able to handle such an event is truly incredible. It's just amazing. So thank you for everything you're doing with this as well because it takes a very special person to do that. So thank you. I thank you. It's we can never underestimate what a small group of committed citizens can do to change the world. And you're one of those committed citizens. So I thank you. It's been a real joy talking with you, Rich. Thank you so much Absolutely. for your time. Thank you. Thank you, Rich for your years of service, and for your astute observations about the systems involved in emergency response. What would we do without the people who dedicate their careers to being EMS workers, firefighters, trauma responders, and others trained and ready to help us through bodily crisis? As Rich stated, there are so many variables to each emergency and so many factors that can slow down a swift response that we can thank responders for their quick problem-solving capacity. And on a personal level, I thank and am so grateful for the many individuals who were part of the complicated response to Archer's complicated spinal cord injury. Thank you for listening.
Please help us spread this healing resource far and wide. If you enjoyed today's episode, please share this with a friend who might gain something. And please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also support the podcast directly by becoming a patron at Patreon. All those links are in the show notes for this episode. Thank you for listening. Together, we are raising the vibration for healing. Life can change in the blink of an eye. Life is so precious. Sending love. Hope for everything. Obtain everything. Love heals trauma. Thank you for tuning in to the Trauma Healing Learnings. You may tune in to the companion Blink of an Eye story at Season 3, Episode 23, Lessons from Past Traumas. Thank you for listening, subscribing, and following. And thank you for telling your friends about Blink of an Eye podcast. Together, we are raising the vibration for healing. You've been listening to Blink of an Eye. We ask that you share this with anyone who may need inspiration, a lift, or who may relate. Never miss an episode. Subscribe to Blink of an Eye on our website, blinkofaneyepodcast.com, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is sponsored by Baltimore Mediation. Baltimore Mediation has served clients worldwide by facilitating negotiation breakthroughs, believing in their capacity for meaningful face-to-face dialogue. You can learn more at baltimoremediation.com.